Well, the 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 really short story is that that uh, Cecilia's uh, first husband beat her, and it was the second husband who killed her, and mm-hmm. it was a particularly brutal murder, uh-huh. a very horrific murder. So you know she she had bad luck or uh-huh. made bad choices in in her husbands. The first husband was my great grandfather, and would okay. have been would have been uh, my mom's grandfather. Uh huh. Okay. And then she got married again, and then she got married again. Oh, goodness. You heard that right. Author of The Potato Masher Murder, Gary Sosnicki, talk about his great-grandmother Cecilia's brutal murder at the hands of her second husband, Albin Ludwig. More into that later, but first. Welcome to Round the Bend Now and Then, a podcast that shines a light on the South Bend and Mishawaka area. Through interviews with local business owners, leaders, and community members, our listeners and I learn together about all of the great people and great things going on in our community, as we also learn about South Bend and Mishawaka's history and how intertwined our past is with our present. At the very start of the episode, you heard Gary Sosnicki discuss his great-grandmother Cecilia's death and how horrific it was. In this episode... You'll hear exactly how awful it was, even by today's standards. A few years ago, Gary wrote about his great-grandmother Cecilia's death in a book titled The Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with a podcast related to the South Bend and Mishawaka area? Well, (laughs) this brutal murder took place 117 years ago in a brand new neighborhood in the 200 block of East Marion Street in Mishawaka, Indiana, in a house that happens to be still standing. Gary's book is about an intriguing but obviously sad tale of jealousy, anger, and ultimately a brutal murder. Now, I highly encourage our listeners to go out and read his book because if you're like me and you love our local history, this book does a wonderful job of painting a picture of what turn-of-the-century downtown Mishawaka was like. I mean, the entire book is littered with historical references, street names, etc. And then you throw in the wild murder in the brand-new Marion Street neighborhood. I had to get Gary on the podcast and hear it straight from him. Now, obviously, it's impossible to tell the whole story in one podcast episode, so I highly recommend that you go out and get his book. And Gary explains later on exactly where you can do that. In this episode, you'll hear Gary and I discuss his great-grandmother's murder, what the scene was like around her Mishawaka home that day, a surprise visit to what Gary thought was the murder scene, and then a few of the ups and downs of researching, writing, and ultimately publishing a book about it. I recently met with Gary virtually from his home in the Ozarks in Missouri. And as you'll hear, that definitely is not the only place that he's lived. Next... Before we dive into the story of his great-grandmother Cecilia's death, I share with Gary how I discovered his book, and then I ask him a little bit about himself. The background with me finding your book, I think I was on a Facebook history page or or something, and I, I saw and it, the potato masher murder, death at the hands of a jealous husband. I obviously d- clicked on it to see what was up, and I saw Mishawaka, Indiana, I I, uh, had no clue about this, 
And, uh, and so I bought the book, read it. This was a few years ago. Then um, fast forward to, I don't know, a month or so ago, um, I, I let my mom borrow the book. And then so she had given it back to me. That's when I took a picture of the book and tweeted it on my Round the Bend 574 Twitter account um, because I'm always want to lift up local um, books and businesses and things like that. So I tweeted it and then you had responded pretty much right away. And I said, wow, I'm starting a podcast. Let's let's see if we can invite Gary on. And so so here we are. So first, thank you. That, well, you're welcome. My first comment would be, did your mom like it? Yeah, she did. She's a history okay. buff. She's a history uh, buff like me, especially local history. So anytime you read something that we recognize, you know, street names and things like that, it's just it's just engaging, you know. Plus, I, I, it was quite quite the quite the the crime. <laughs> so it, it's yes, a, yes, it was. Yeah. All right. Before we begin, Gary, let's just talk about a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe your career, background, and all those things. I'm a native of the Chicago suburbs, and I went to college at the University of Missouri to study journalism uh-huh. and uh, met my wife in copy editing class. We got married on graduation day and uh, graduated in the morning and got married in the afternoon. Our, <laughs> our, our parents met each other for the first time and, you know, multitaskers from the beginning. We Wow. We we worked for a, a daily newspaper in Jackson, Tennessee. Then we uh-huh. worked for competing newspapers in Southern Illinois. And then we started buying our own newspapers. And we bought uh, our first weekly newspaper in a town of 907 people. Wow. And just about as many loose dogs. <laughs> and and we, we owned that and, and uh, for six years and okay. went out to Kansas a couple years, came back to Missouri, bought another weekly newspaper, a little bit bigger town. We uh-huh. were there 10 and a half years. And, um, and we sold that one to a, a, a fellow who owns a, a daily newspaper. It uh-huh. was a daily newspaper in the town where we happen to be living now. Right. We ran that for four years. Um, and then we bought another weekly newspaper and yet a bigger town and had that for four years. Then went up to, um, Iowa, if you're familiar with American Pickers on TV. Absolutely. Uh, we, lived, we lived in the town where uh, American Pickers, where Mike Wolf okay. has a store. You see that on LeClaire, Iowa. Yeah. And we were there for eight years. I worked across the river uh, at a company that, a major company that that sells digital products in the newspaper industry. And then we okay. retired seven years ago, came back to Missouri. And you're living the dream now. We are. Yeah. <laughs> Spent yeah, four years working on a book and a year and a half promoting it. So how long have you been married? It'll be 50 years this May. Beautiful. What an absolute blessing. Seriously, 50 years. That's just, that's beautiful. I, I can't, you. you can't say anything more than that. My, my parents are going on about 40, 47 years. And then my wife's parents are about the same. And, and we just, we think our lucky stars being blessed with both of our families. You know, both of our parents have been married for that long. It's just a blessing. So Congrats. <laughs> Thank you very much. Absolutely. Wow. 50 years. Definitely a blessing. Decades and decades. It was also decades and decades that Gary's family kept hush hush about Cecilia's murder. As you'll hear next, he didn't talk about it with his mother, Cecilia's granddaughter, until 1996. And as you'll also hear, as a kid, he spent some time with his grandfather, Cecilia's son. And not once did he mention anything about his mother being murdered in Mishawaka, Indiana. 
at the beginning of the book, you had mentioned that you didn't learn about the murder until 1996 from your mother, and then the details were still vague. Um, yeah, well, I mean, my my little little brother and I have talked about this. We would we would hear we would hear talk about something having happened. Uh-huh. Um, you know, growing up, we'd hear maybe at Thanksgiving or Christmas dinners with with our grandparents, uh-huh. and we would kind of hear things, but we we knew almost nothing about it. And and finally, in 1996, is when I got my mom to talk a little bit about it. Wow! And then your mom would have been Cecilia's granddaughter. Cecilia's, Cecilia's granddaughter, right? And then you had mentioned your grandfather, which is Cecilia's son. My grandfather was Cecilia's son. And you right. had mentioned him hanging out with him, like in Chicago as a child, yeah. and he really never yeah. said anything. And he took me to Cub games, Wrigley Field. Lie. Oh, we sat mind. once behind. We sat once behind home plate at Wrigley Field. I think there were three dollar tickets back then. Uh huh. And uh, and uh, right in the first row. And my grandma had told me on the on the when I left with him, don't let him stop at any taverns. Well, we stopped at a tavern, <laughs> and then we got to the ball game and she was able to count the number of beers that he drank because you know he would put the beer on the, uh, <laughs> on the wall there behind home plate so <laughs> and he never said a word about his mother being murdered no huh? no no he would have been 14 he would have been 14 years old when it happened okay okay one of the things that stood out in my head most of the time that i was reading the book was what that entire scene must have looked like in turn of the century mishawaka indiana to get a picture of where this occurred, the 200 block of East Marion Street is right off of Main Street near the old Battelle School, which is now Battelle Apartments. Marion Street literally runs parallel with the Grand Trunk Railroad tracks there, so their backyards are very close to the tracks. Now that neighborhood is an old one with lots of homes that are very close together. But in 1906, it was a new subdivision and only a handful of homes were on Marion Street. Main Street wasn't even named Main Street yet north of the river, as it was called Bridge Street, and it wasn't even paved yet. The now historic Main Street Bridge was just being built, so I'm sure nobody in the Princess City could have imagined the scene inside and outside of that house on Marion Street. Next, you'll hear Gary describe the scene inside of the house on that fateful day. Love to kind of get your thoughts about the actual crime and some of the events that that uh, surround the murder. And while we we we, I want my listeners to read the book so we don't have to go through every single okay. um, detail about it. I I really, as I'm reading it, I just just wow. Some of my wow moments. Um, the the first one. Now, listeners, this is turn of the century Mishawaka, Indiana, um, and the scene. I just couldn't imagine that scene. Talk to me about what that scene would have looked like. The fire chief opened the door to the closet, uh-huh. and walk-in closet, what today we'd call walk-in closet, and discovered a body on the floor. He said, he, he testified that she looked like a real half-baked chicken. Mm-hmm. And that was my great-grandmother, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Cecilia uh, Henderson Hornberg uh, Ludwig. Who uh, was was dead on the on the floor there? Mm-hmm. The the fire department was called to the scene without talking about 
the different scenarios of what may have happened. The fire department was called to the scene between 1.30 and 2.30 on this mm -hmm. Tuesday afternoon uh, when when neighbors saw smoke coming out of the uh, upstairs window. Mm -hmm. And um, the front door was locked. Uh, so they, they went through an up, they went through another upstairs window with, with a hose and they, they had, um, what basically was a type of fire extinguisher from, mm -hmm. from that era. And they saw, uh, smoke and they, first they, they saw a, a man on a bed, uh, who was all bloody. Okay. Uh, and that would be Alvin and, right. and he was, he was suffering from cuts and uh so what in the world's going on here right. so they, they they managed to extinguish this this fire in the closet they discover it's coming from the closet they open uh -huh. the closet door and they and it's going to the roof and putting that and they get put the fire out and there's this charred body of a wow. woman nude charred body mm. of a woman on the floor and uh there uh, amazing like it seems like half the town saw her there because that right that was there was very little security then but um so that was that was the scene you've got a bloody the bloody husband oh. on the bed and you've got the dead wife uh, on the floor of the walk-in closet whoo man imagine that Smoke is detected in one of just a few of the new houses in a new housing development. The firemen show up probably thinking they're just going to extinguish a fire and they discover a charred body in the closet and then a man who was all sliced up and bloodied. Imagine being that firefighter. Definitely not your normal early 1900s Mishawaka fire. When you read about Alvin's wounds in the book, it's pretty descriptive. Next, I asked Gary to elaborate about those wounds. Talk. You mentioned Albin was bloody. Talk to me about how he got bloodied. Well, we believe that Albin sliced himself up mm -hmm. to make it look like self-defense. Um, that that. Uh, that he had a, a razor. They uh -huh. found a razor, an old-fashioned razor on the on the floor. And you know, when I did my book presentations, uh, I had all these props, like mm -hmm. including a potato masher. That I did not have a razor. <laughs> you did not have a rusty <laughs> razor. No. But, but he sliced himself up on, on the neck uh -huh. and the arms and and the legs. And uh, one of the wounds on his leg was three inches deep. So, so he, he apparently thought to make it look like Cecilia had done this to him. Uh -huh. um, you know, that, that would have been, that would have been impossible. Right. But then, but that's how they found him on the, on the, on the bed. Oh man. Again, what a gory thing to discover. Whew. Well, that's what the firemen discovered inside of the house. But imagine being a neighbor or a townsperson at that time outside of the house, because that was quite a scene as well. Then the scene outside of the house, as I'm reading it, again, I'm just picturing 19, you know, turn of the century, Mishawaka, Indiana, Marion Street, um, 
our listeners right now, if you're familiar, it's more of a of a neighborhood with houses close together. But as you described in the book, there are only five houses. Only there, five then. houses. It was new. It would be like yeah. a subdivision, um, yeah. just with a few houses. But I can only imagine the scene once the folks neighbors outside knew that there was a dead woman inside, like you said, like baked chicken, like the 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 fire chief said. They dragged Albin out on the roof. Out of the window, yeah. Then, yeah. then so there's on, on top of a porch. There would be, yeah. yeah. So they, yeah, the porch, and all of those houses have have porches. So, so he came out the window and then brought him down and and put him on a cot outside, and and then it became, I guess, a, a such a big public scene that they brought him back inside the house because the fire was out, and and put him on a on a couch. I mean, it's just when you describe. Yeah, I'm glad they brought him back in because like you described him, mean, he's on a cot, his legs were twitching. You mentioned his the the gashes and so anyway, I just that that to me is just wild, you know. So you have that scene in your head, all of that commotion and all of that awfulness. Well, you won't believe who happened to stumble upon all of that. You'll hear about it next. Speaking of the scene, Cecilia's mother Mrs. Henderson. What 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 is her first name again? I f- I forgot. Um. Anyway, Mrs. Henderson, yeah. Cecilia's mother, just so happened to be pulling up to visit her daughter's. Yeah, she took the train. And the train. Yeah. Those our listeners on Marion yeah, Street literally runs parallel. The the Grand Trunk Railroad yeah, track. Christina Christina Henderson. Yeah. The 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 train tracks are right behind the house. Uh-huh. There's a there's an alley behind the houses on that side of the street. And the train tracks there, and it was like. 23 miles or something. I, I've got that in the book. Yeah. Um, between between Kingsbury and she was coming up to a visit. And so she gets there and, and she discovers that Unbelievable. her, her is, is is dead. And uh, and she was one of the first visitors of <laughs> Albert in the, in the hospital. That's my next question. Talk about it. Yeah. Well, she shows up at the hospital, and and Albin's in Epworth Hospital, E P W O R T H, which actually, when you see a picture of it, it looks like a a big older house. Correct. And uh, he was in the the jail ward of the hospital, so they did have a an area of the hospital for prisoners. Uh huh. And he's in the hospital, and his brother, I think, his brother is there, and there, I know they had a policeman guarding and and maybe his brother Gustav's wife may have been there too and and um Christina Henderson shows up uh, and wants to talk to Elvin Elvin well uh and Elvin says well what does she want and because he wasn't sure that about letting her in right and but but she go she came in and she just wanted to make sure that she could be the administrator of the of the estate. She didn't come in with a knife or anything. Right. To, right. To attack him. But just when I read that and asked my next question was the mother of the woman who got murdered went to the suspected mur- murderer's hospital. I mean, just amazing. And like you had said in the book, really, it's just she was calm and everything. She really just wanted um, to be the, the administrator or, or whatever. That is crazy. And it just goes to show that this was a completely different time. 
the mother of the woman who was beaten with a potato masher and set on fire, visited the person accused of killing her in the hospital. And he mentioned that Alvin was at Epworth Hospital. That is Memorial Hospital in downtown South Bend now. Obviously, there's a lot more to this story than just the day of the murder. And when you all go out and read the book, you'll discover that he describes what occurred after the murder with the trial and all of that. But he also describes the days leading up to the murder. So next, I wanted to share a story that Gary wrote about in the book that took place the night before the murder. And this will give you a sense of how jealous Albin was and led him to commit the horrific crimes that you just heard about. And I was really interested in the downtown uh-huh. because of, of the, the important part of the story that happened the night before, and that, and that was downtown. Yep, that was. In the boarding house? Is that... Well, talking about um, Albin um, spying on... Yeah on uh, Cecilia and her sister Jean mm-hmm. uh, talking to the bridge man yep. the name is Ackerman and, and Alvin was Alvin was standing uh, standing in front of the Milburn house which which was a hotel on the on the southeast corner just back a little bit I think there's a bank on the southeast corner but mm-hmm. just back a little bit yep first source Milburn house and then Kitty Corner across that street, there was a, a, a drugstore, Graham's Southside Drugstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Graham was a smart pharmacist. He had stores on both sides, both sides of, of the river. <laughs> sides of the river. And uh, you know, Alvin had followed the the two women mm-hmm. uh, downtown, and uh, they weren't supposed to be going that far, but he followed them downtown, and he saw them talking to the bridge man uh, who uh, his his real name was Ackerman and we never did discover what his his first name was but talking to him at the opposite corner and uh, it was near dusk and he uh, he sees a policeman by mm-hmm. the name of James James Anderson at the corner and he goes to the policeman and he says do you know who those women are mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's getting dark so uh, the patrolman walks halfway into the into the street into the intersection of of second and may and uh, to get a good look and mm-hmm. he comes back and he says to alvin well that's your wife i i see her downtown all the time and of course alvin i'm sure he's thinking yeah i bet you yeah do. <laughs> and, and alvin tells the policeman that uh, um i want you to get a good look at that mm-hmm. because just in case something happens, and I don't remember if that was the exact quote, but something very right. similar to that. Just in case something happens. And of course, something did happen the next day. Yep. Yeah, the bridge man. He was working on the new bridge Main man. Street Bridge, which is still yeah. there. Yeah, uh, Albin was quite jealous. When you read the book, you'll read more about that as well. He mentioned Second and Main Street. That's Lincoln Way in Maine. The Phoenix Bar is right there in the new Mishawaka City Hall. The old Liberty Mutual building is right there as well. Again, there's a lot more to all of this than just what you'll hear in this episode, but I thought it was important to point out a little bit of Albin's jealousy. Next, Gary provides some of Cecilia's traits that probably got Albin a bit jealous. Then he talked about how strange it was that they were married in the first place. Yeah, Cecilia, and I'll make this clear to your your listeners, Uh um, Nobody deserves to be murdered. Nope. But Cecilia 
um, probably deserve to be divorced. Uh, right. She she right. was a politely to say modern a woman. Oh, again. Yeah, modern woman. Yeah, <laughs> that's your chapter that's, in the that end. Story ran, that story ran in the paper on the day of her death, <laughs> and uh, which which I found a, you know, I found it amusing. Um, but yeah, she it, uh, she was flir- flirtatious, if right. not promiscuous. Right. Right. And you had, and you poor Albin. A- poor Albin. Um, Albin had a temper. Yeah. Cecilia had a temper. Yep. Um, they were mismatched physically in size. Cecilia was bigger than he was. Wow. It was it was just a, a strange marriage. Uh how and and it's still a mystery to me how they found each other. And she was she was divorced. She was living as a domestic for a reverend. I think his name was H. B. Townsend uh-huh. in the in Elkhart. Yep. And uh they met in and and Albin was was running a saloon that he yep. bought in Elkhart that he apparently went broke running a saloon, and how in the world they met, uh, and fell in love. A brief word from one of our sponsors. I want to thank Augie's Locker Room for sponsoring this episode. If you've never been to Augie's, let me tell you, Augie's Locker Room is a Notre Dame sports memorabilia and gift shop, and folks. The words memorabilia and gift shop really don't sum up the place. You walk into Augie's and it is literally like a Notre Dame sports museum. From leather helmets to autographed footballs, championship rings, game-worn cleats and gear, and even my favorite football player ever, Joe Montana's jersey. Augie's locker room is located a quarter mile from Notre Dame at 1811 South Bend Avenue, if you're familiar with Studebagels or Tap House on the Edge restaurant, it's right in that same plaza. I highly recommend that you stop by Augie's Locker Room. If you have a loved one in your life that's a Notre Dame fan, stop by and find that perfect original gift for them. If you're a Notre Dame fan, stop by Augie's and buy that perfect gift for yourself. You deserve it. And at the same time that you're shopping and looking at all the historical memorabilia, you might learn something you didn't know about Notre Dame sports history from Jim, the owner. He's a great dude, very knowledgeable, and most importantly, passionate about Notre Dame and the South Bend and Mishawaka area. Again, check out Augie's Locker Room at 1811 South Bend Avenue. Their phone number, get this, 574-277-ND. ND. So 574-277-6363. Check them out at their website, augieslockerroom.com. And I also put that link into the show notes so you can check them out there. Or you can find them on Facebook, Augie's Locker Room. Now, back to the episode. Albin was ultimately convicted of Cecilia's murder and sentenced to prison. Even though he was convicted of beating his wife with a wooden potato masher, then setting her body on fire, slicing himself all up, he was paroled after 16 years in prison. Next, Gary describes that and how they found out how Albin was buried in an unmarked grave. Albin was paroled. And if when our listeners read this book, if you're like me, 
there's no nothing was going through my head at all that this man would be paroled. I I it was it was a given once he was guilty, he's in jail the rest of his life, if not the death penalty, but at least the rest of his life. The dude was paroled in 1950 16 years later, and then he died in what, 1954? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and that was something that in, in my research that I was asked uh by the publisher, is is this normal? 16 years, just right. like Matt, what you're asking. And it turned out it was. Wow. Of the 12 or 13 um, similar murders that I found during that decade in Indiana, um, if they didn't hang you, you got out after 15, 16 years. Wow. And there were some who were hanged. You know, if, yeah. if the guy went the guy went into a, a department store and shot his shot his wife to death publicly, yeah, you, know, you get hanged. Right. But um but 15, 16 years was, was pretty common. Wow. I mean, I, I, I just found that amazing. And then I found it just amazing that here's some old retired guy in the fifties, like just, and you, you had said something about, he might've just died a, a lonely old man or I don't know, but it was. Yeah. Wild. Because, because he's, he's in an unmarked grave. Yeah. And in Rice Cemetery in, in Elkhart. And we could not find an obituary anywhere. Wow. Uh, a death notice anywhere. That's that was something where I went personally to the, the microfilm uh-huh. of the El- Elkhart Truth uh, at the library to to look for, it. and we went through. We could not find. Wow. And one one of his descendants uh-huh. who helped me with the book. It would not be a direct descendant. Um, she found it in a book that the funeral home published of people it had. Period. Oh wow! And that's where that's where we got the, the, the social security. You know, we I couldn't find anything in social security records. I love history and especially our local history because it's close and accessible at any given time. If I know of a place or something of some historical significance from our area, I can literally drive out to those places myself and just imagine what it was like at whatever moment in time. And where this horrific murder took place is literally in the middle of a city now and only about three miles from my house. So, of course, I wanted to check out exactly where it occurred and just try to imagine what that whole area looked like at that time. The murder took place in a house on the north side of Marion Street between Christiane and Sarah Street. So I've walked or driven past it several times, and since it's in the middle of a residential neighborhood, and also the fact that the house is still standing and has people living in it, you just can't stand and stare in the middle of the street. You kind of have to be discreet as you walk past. And as you'll hear next, there is still some question over what exact house it is. The actual house that the murder took place in. Now, here's the deal. I when I originally read the book a few years ago, um, I had driven or down Marion Street and got to know, I narrowed it down to a few homes, which I think it would have happened in. Then in the book, you had also mentioned that um, you didn't you didn't give the address out in the book either. So then once I got to newspapers.com, I a few months ago I just literally Googled the the address. And of course, it's in the newspaper and it's still a home. It's still on Marion Street. So I went out there. I walked my dog. I just walked around and and I was like, wow, this is the house. 
So then maybe, maybe. <laughs> so then about I, I, that's the day I tweeted something and you had mentioned on you know in a reply like, well, we don't know what house it is because Mishawaka might have changed the addresses. So talk to me about that. Yeah, it, it came out. It came out in the trial that the addresses were changed in between the time of the murder and the the trial. Uh-huh. That that wasn't that wasn't the address of the house. Um, so you start to thinking about this in writing the book. Well, the the who knows if the addresses had been changed again. I mean, they could have True. been. It's been 110, 120 True. years. They could have they could have been changed back. So um, it's. It's not, um, you know, it's not safe to say which house it was. Plus, there's people right. living in the right. house, and um, you know, I I talked my way into <laughs> the house that I I thought it was, and uh, and the owner and I, I really handled it badly. I, I well, if he's if he's listening again, uh-huh. I apologize. You know, I said, well. I, I, we're, we're stalking, we're outside the house and waiting for him to come home from work. Wow. And I say, hey, I, I, I want to, any chance I could see your house? My great, great grandmother was murdered in your house. And he goes, <laughs> oh, I wish you hadn't told me that. And that oh really my was, gosh. he did let me in the house. And, and oh. I, I went upstairs into the closet. So I could say I've been in the closet, except, except, except. You read the book. Uh huh. There is. Uh, we know the addresses may have changed. There is a big clue in the book as to which house that might be. I am st- behind my screen right now. I've spent the last half an hour uh-huh. looking at a picture of the houses on that street, one right. that I took. And it could be any one of four houses. Wow! Because that, that there were five houses on the street, uh-huh. and I've looked there were four houses, and they were, looked like they could have been built by the same contractor. Uh, it's a little bit different designs, but they could have been. Um, the addresses have changed. Mm-hmm. There is a clue in the book. Which one? I I now think. Of course, these houses could have been remodeled over a, a hundred years ago too. But mm-hmm. uh, you read the book, you get an idea of, gosh, could it be that house because of a feature in the front of the house? So uh-huh. I will leave it at that. We will leave it at that. We will leave it at that. <laughs> my oh my! Could you imagine being a homeowner and some random guy shows up? and says that his great-grandmother was brutally murdered in your bedroom closet and set on fire. (laughs) Woo! For the remainder of the episode, we talk about writing the book, and he shares some of the ups and downs of it all. Next, Gary talks about not even knowing if he had enough material to even write a book, and then he describes the moment that he knew exactly when he had it. But I was just so fascinated by this story. Wanted to know what what I had, and uh-huh. and I didn't know if there was a book there. Yeah, um, I I didn't I didn't know if there was a, a magazine article. Uh huh. So we make this first trip uh-huh. to uh, to South Bend and and Mishawaka and Kingsbury and uh, even Elkhart, 
And you say um, we, it's you and your wife? Helen and I, yeah. Okay. And uh, again, who is as talented a, a, a journalist as, uh-huh. as I am. And uh, so we make this first trip. And um, one of our stops was uh, the St. Joseph County Archives. Okay. And we, we, we were looking for a, the trial transcript. Okay. And uh, um, we never saw a real person in the archives building. And, and uh, we just were shouting to someone who was working in back. And uh, I'm looking for a trial transcript from, um, from 19, uh, 1907. And, and she said, um, oh, we throw out felony cases after 55 years. <sighs> and, and that was a real low point. Yeah. In, in that, uh, I had thanks to the Mishawaka Penn Harris Library mm-hmm. Heritage Center and the supervisor there, and, and I'll mispronounce her name, and I think it's Deanna Jude, okay. who was en- enormously helpful. Um, we had microfilm of the Mishawaka Enterprise and um, the two South Bend newspapers, uh-huh. daily newspapers of that time, the South Bend Daily Times and the, the, uh, and the Tribune, mm-hmm. yeah, still exists. Yep. So, I mean, I we had a lot of information for that, but I wanted a trial transcript. So that was that right. was a really, really low point. Okay. And that's one of two low points in this in this journey. Uh huh. So uh, we get back here uh, to Southwest Missouri in the Ozarks, which again is a good nine hour drive, and uh, uh, I start doing uh, um, checking. Uh, the Indiana State Archives online. Okay. And I found out that I could order prison mug shots. Okay. So um, I think there were 15 bucks a piece or something. So I ordered a mug shot of, of Alvin Ludwig, uh-huh. who was the second husband that killed. So I get a mug shot of Alvin Ludwig. So I order these mug shots and I start an email correspondence with uh, a fellow named Michael Vetman. And Michael was a uh, an archivist for the Indiana Records, okay. uh, Indiana Archives and Records Administration, and he became my hero. Uh, in my wow. email conversation, as I ordered ordered these these mugshots, I said, uh, "If you are ever in the Indiana Supreme Court archives, this case was." appealed to the Indiana uh-huh. Supreme Court. There was no appellate court at that time. So it went straight from the circuit okay. court, Supreme Court. And I said, I'm looking for the trial transcript. And, uh, you know, I figured, well, if it didn't exist in one place, it's not Right, of course, yeah. So it, it, barely a week later, I get a phone call from Michael. And Mr. Sosnicki, I've got it. Wow. Holy, holy cow. So, and, and this is, you know, it's getting to be fall and, and the weather is turning bad. And uh, I said, OK, as soon as we can, we're getting up, getting going to Indianapolis to see it. So that when we went to Indianapolis on that trip and that was January of 2017, had to wait for the snow to clear. Uh-huh. Um, that was that was when I really knew I had enough material for a book. Next, Gary shares what the biggest challenge of writing the book was. What were some challenges in writing the book? Well, um, the biggest challenge is that you guys are nine hours away from me. 
And I, that's funny you said that, Gary, because I, I have a question later on about the challenges of re- <laughs> trying to research a book and write a book being that far. So let's let's go for it. <laughs> well, initially, uh, all right. Well, uh, initially, of course, back in in 1996, right. um, there there wasn't a newspapers.com or an ancestry.com right. or uh, genealogybank.com was the third third software that I used. Um, that didn't exist until I until I started again in, in uh-huh. retirement. But um, but you guys, um, you know, when I really started doing the research mm-hmm. and needed to make trips to Indiana, mm-hmm. um, you're a long way. And I thought, <laughs> I <I'm>, thought, gosh, <laughs> I should have been I should have been writing about one of the murders I covered here in Missouri as a reporter. Right. And that had to have been a challenge, living nine hours away and writing a factual-based nonfiction book. Speaking of traveling to the area, I asked him what his first impressions were of the South Bend and Mishawaka area. And he also described how important it was for him to walk through the city to get a sense of the whole area. It would be hard to tell the story of Cecilia's death and everything surrounding that. It'd be hard to tell that just from your home, like you had to travel here. Um, Yes. What, and you had to hear specifically to the Princess City herself, the city of Mishawaka. What were your first impressions of our area here in Northern Indiana? Um, you know, I had made one trip to Indiana as a, to Northern Indiana as a kid. From my, Chicago, my dad, so it is close. Chicago, yeah, yeah. My, my, my dad took me on a business trip once to Elkhart. Uh-huh. So that was, that was my, my one experience there. Um, you know, I've, I've traveled all over the country. Yeah. I, I, Mishawaka seemed like a very nice city with the river going through it. Right. Um, I did a lot of walking on my on my last trip to Mishawaka before the book before I'd finished writing the book. Mm -hmm. I walked all the distances that are described in the book. Right. So that I knew how how long in minutes it would have taken Albin to go to to Graham's North Side drugstore. Uh, how long it would have taken Cecilia and her sister to walk to what was called the the Four Corners? Yes. That before, so I walked. I did all of that, so I got to see a, a lot of pretty stuff. And that that's ironic. You mentioned that because obviously, 1906. I mean, there weren't automobiles or anything like that, and so that's the majority of the way that they got around. And everything was in that area, but it's still not close, 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 close up at. Yeah, Albin and Cecilia's house all the way south down to the four corners you mentioned, which is to our listeners, it's Lincoln Way and Main Street now. Um, yeah, it was. And it was Ridge it was, Street. Uh, Second Street back before oh, Second Street. Like, You're right. It was yeah. Second Street. Yeah. Um, I had to look that up again today. As you probably know by now, I'm kind of addicted to researching old newspaper articles because you can learn tons and really get a feel for what it was like at the time. Next, Gary and I talk about that and how the great majority of this book was written based off of newspaper articles at the time. I asked him how hard it was to craft a story based just off of the articles. And the, the like we, we talked about, there's no internet, there's no television, heck no radio. The great bulk of your research came from newspapers and from yes, the, the trial transcripts. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we had a we had a uh, journalism teacher. He taught history and principles of of journalism by uh-huh. the name of Doctor William Howard Taft. <laughs> so um, it was a it was a great name. He was uh-huh. probably born in the 
Taft presidency. <laughs> and and he he taught us that that uh, newspapers are a tool for historians. Mm -hmm. And when I've done my public speaking about the book, I, I repeat that and say, you know, what are we going to do? What are historians going to do if newspapers cease to exist? And uh, um, and then, of course, being a journalist, what what are we all going to do if newspapers right. cease to exist? Right. And I do worry about that. So much information is packed in there. Um, I mean, tons. Yeah. However, you still, in doing all of that research, you had to, you had to craft the story. It's you know you could throw uh, twenty newspaper articles on somebody's desk and 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 you still couldn't craft the story. I mean, so how hard was that to take in all of that information and then tell it in a in a book? And you did a great job of telling the story. Thank you, thank you. It it wasn't well. The, it was uh, there was a lot of labor involved, uh -huh. but structuring it wasn't difficult because I'd okay. spent you know forty three years. True. As a as a newspaper reporter, I owned newspapers, uh -huh. but I also wrote during most of that time. True. And you know, I once I knew what my lead was, okay, which became the first chapter. When you know, when when you're doing an interview as a when I'm doing an interview for a, a newspaper, um, I'll look for, I, I'll make a note, uh, I'll take a pen and and write in my notes, lead. You know, when I'm doing that interview, that's okay. That's important. That that's where I'm starting with. And I knew what I was going to start with in this book, which was the night before, because I think that what happened the night before was was dramatic. So from that point on, I I would talk about I talked about the the history of the families, yeah, which the publisher publisher made me cut down significant. No, it wasn't a publisher made me cut that down. One of my beta readers, I guess okay. that's the where I'm not a real author, but the beta readers, the the people you send it to. Hey, what do you think here? You got to oh, cut that down. Oh, okay. So I did that, and then I went pretty chronologically through yeah through this part. Yeah, it's hard to take a ton of information like that and craft something that the reader can understand. And he definitely does a real good job of that in the book. Next, Gary tells you all where to go buy his book. All right. Well, hey, where can our listeners purchase the book? Where's the best spot for them to go? Well, I need to mention my publisher first. The okay. Kent State University Press uh, website sells it, okay. but they can go on to Amazon okay. and uh, 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 Barnes and Noble. They can go to the okay. Mishawaka Barnes and Noble. It won't be in stock there. I wish it was. Uh -huh. it, it probably is not in stock there, but you can order it through Barnes and Noble. They nice. can get it so just about anywhere, anywhere where you can order a book. You can get it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Round the Bend Now and Then. I truly appreciate you spending your valuable time listening. A huge thank you to Gary Sosnicki for meeting and sharing your journey writing the Potato Masher murder. Gary, if you ever need anything up here in sunny northern Indiana, let me know. Folks, go out and buy his book. As you just heard for the last 45 minutes, I highly recommend it. And I do need a few favors from you, from our listeners. If you like the show, please, please, please share it with others that you think would appreciate it. You can text them the, the show link. Let them know that they can check it out on all of the uh, podcast platforms. Also, follow us on Twitter, at RoundTheBendPod, or on Facebook, RoundTheBend Now and Then. Follow us on the original Twitter account, at RoundTheBend574. 
If you have any feedback, let me know. If you have any ideas for episode topics, let me know. If there's something that you think I can improve upon, let me know. Email me, roundthebend574 at gmail.com or message me on Twitter or Facebook. Thank you again for joining us as we learn more about South Bend and Mishawaka's Now and Then.